We don't know all of the numbers, but we know this much. A campaign that started a year ago with four staff members, no name recognition, no money, just a big idea. A campaign that some said should have no business even making this attempt has taken its place at the front of this race to replace the current president with a better vision for the future. That's you, trying to disguise yourself as a worker bee. That's you trying to blend in with hive. But you're not a worker bee. You're a renegade killer bee. Killer bee. Killer bee. Viceberg Slim. Welcome to In Broad Daylight, a solo podcast with your host, Adam Todd Brown. Hey, everybody. Welcome to In Broad Daylight, a politics and news podcast. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. The clip you heard at the beginning of the show was Democratic presidential hopeful Pete Buttigieg pretending he just won the Iowa caucuses fair and square. If you've paid even a scant amount of attention to the news lately, you at least know that happened, and you probably know that the process was absolutely riddled with chaos. That said, it's likely that you still have some questions. Why was it chaos? Who caused that chaos? And most importantly, what the fuck is a caucus anyway? Good news. I'm going to answer all of those questions and more on this episode. And I promise you, at least in some cases, the answers are kind of terrifying. But let's start with the easy one. What is a caucus? The short answer is that it's like a primary that happens in person. You know primaries, right? That's when you go out and vote for who your chosen party will nominate for president as long as it's not Bernie Sanders. So just imagine that, but instead of voting at a ballot box, you go to a place and talk to your fellow voters about it in person. Gross. The caucus system actually predates the primary system, and they used to happen behind closed doors and only among party leaders. Us freedom-loving Americans didn't love that, so most states eventually switched to a more transparent primary system. Six states still use them, though. Maine, Kansas, Nevada, North Dakota, Wyoming, and most importantly, Iowa. It's literally the only time the words most importantly and Iowa are ever used in the same sentence. Which is kind of the point of the Iowa caucuses. They're important because they're first. After months and months of debates and town halls and social media campaigns, the candidates finally get to prove their electability by competing for votes in one of the least diverse states in America. Most years, the process goes off without a hitch. This year, it definitely did not. Here's the short version of what happened. Democrats decided to use a smartphone app to collect and report results from the nearly 1,700 precincts in Iowa. That shouldn't have been a problem. Democrats and Republicans both used an app developed by Microsoft for the 2016 Iowa caucuses, and 95% of precincts managed to validate and release the results by 11 p.m. Central Time, which is about four hours after the caucuses start. But for some reason, the Democrats decided to build and use an entirely new app this year, and that app crashed right around the time results were supposed to start rolling in. No problem, though, because there was a backup telephone hotline 
that precincts could use to report their results. Unfortunately, when you're expecting most results to roll in accompanied by the dulcet tone of a smartphone notification, you're going to staff those phone lines accordingly. So, when all 1,700 precincts essentially tried to call and report all at once, a massive backup formed on those phone lines. And the wait was so long that, in a lot of cases, several precincts ended their caucuses and the people in charge just went to sleep without reporting anything. Others just made up their own unofficial means of reporting results, like texting pictures of their math worksheet to Iowa Democratic Party leaders, and then they also went to sleep. As a result of all of this, as opposed to 95% of precincts reporting by 11 p.m., almost no precincts had reported any results of any kind by the end of the night. Nevertheless, in possibly the weirdest twist of all, at 9.24 p.m., before any results had been reported by any news outlets, and while the people trying to report their precincts results were still mired in chaos, Pete Buttigieg took to Twitter and said the following, Iowa, you have shocked the nation. By all indications, we are going on to New Hampshire victorious. Hashtag Iowa caucuses. If that seems like a suspicious move coming from a candidate that people have taken to calling CIA Pete, let me assure you, it's way more suspicious than you could even imagine. Almost immediately, conspiracy theories started circulating about a DNC campaign to rig the Iowa caucuses in favor of centrist establishment wonder boy, Mayor Pete. At least one liberal-leaning outlet, the Daily Beast, was quick to report that Trump supporters were the first to start pushing that idea in what, at least to me, read like an attempt to downplay the idea that something afoul was going on. After all, if Trump supporters are pushing it, then clearly the idea has no merit. Except, nah, not this time. For one thing, conservative outlets were reporting on concerns about this app before the Iowa caucuses even happened. And when I say that, I'm not talking about Breitbart or Zero Hedge or some shit. Get your mind out of the gutter. On January 26th, the traditionally conservative, but also multiple Pulitzer Prize winning Wall Street Journal reported on the security concerns around the app, and you hate to see it, but those concerns seem pretty valid. The most troubling of them, at least to me, is that the apps were installed on the personal smartphones of caucus workers. That means the security of that app is mostly dependent on how well each person protects their individual phone. And most people suck at protecting their phones. Of course, that all became kind of beside the point once the app stopped working, which, by the way, Iowa Democratic Party Chair Troy Price has blamed on a coding error and definitely not a cyber intrusion of some sort. And you know what? It barely matters. The story is problematic enough without a cyber attack. Because you see, there's a weird detail in that Wall Street Journal article from January. It mentions that, at the time, the Iowa Democratic Party refused to disclose the name of the vendor that made the app. The argument was that naming them could make a cyber attacker's job easier. And here's the thing. That's a stupid answer. And people did not buy it. Eventually, the Democrats had to reveal who made the app. And that's where the story gets really crazy. The app was made by Shadow Inc., a company whose name sounds like it was stolen directly from the pages of a James Bond script. I'm no political strategist, but if Democrats want to avoid being tied to conspiracy theories going forward, maybe work with companies with less conspiratorial names. 
You hire CrowdStrike to investigate Russian interference, then let Shadow Inc. build an app for the Iowa caucuses. What's the ETA on teaming up with Umbrella Corporation to cure coronavirus? Am I right, gamers? I don't play video games. Anyway, it was revealed shortly thereafter that both Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg have given money to Shadow Inc. in the past, which is a mighty convenient set of circumstances, seeing as how we're talking about an app that helped ensure centrists didn't have to moan their way through a Bernie Sanders victory speech in Iowa. And speaking of companies with movie villain names and ties to establishment Democrats, the money to found Shadow Inc. came from a company called Acronym. And in a twist that I'm sure is completely coincidental and unimportant, the CEO of Acronym, Tara McGowan, is married to a senior advisor to Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign. Another woman, Greta Carnes, was at least at some point in history Acronym's senior organizing director. Her job now? National organizing director for, say it with me, Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign. They both, like most everyone else involved in Acronym, also worked for Hillary Clinton and or Barack Obama in the past. So it's not surprising that people at the highest levels of that company would support an establishment candidate like Pete Buttigieg. But you're lying to yourself if you think it's not a little conflict of interesty that they'd be tasked with building the app used to run the 2020 Iowa Democratic caucuses that ended in a seemingly miraculous out-of-nowhere win for their guy. So who the hell is Acronym? Glad you asked. They're what's called a dark money group. I know, that sounds pretty cool. What it means is that they're registered as a social welfare nonprofit, meaning they're not required to disclose the names of their donors. Then they get to spend that donor money promoting whatever political candidate or idea they want to promote. In other words, super duper rich people can throw lots of money into promoting the candidate most likely to protect their money, all while not even sort of violating any campaign finance laws. If that sounds like something you remember complaining about in the past, it's because this is nothing new in politics. It's just kind of new for Democrats. If you've ever complained about the Koch brothers, you were complaining about dark money. Just to drive home how correct that last point is, author Jane Meyer's 2016 book about the Koch brothers is called Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires behind the rise of the radical right. So basically what acronym represents is establishment Democrats employing Republican tactics for the benefit of establishment Democrats. If that sounds cynical, consider that acronym was founded using money provided by LinkedIn founder Reed Hoffman through his Investing in US, or us, get it? initiative, which he runs with the help of a corporate consultant named Dimitri Melhorn. Here's a quote from a Vanity Fair interview with Melhorn. There was no risk capital or growth capital arm of the resistance, and so that is what we've tried to build. In December 2018, Tara McGowan tweeted this, I'm personally grateful and proud to be included in this group of incredible political founders and startups who Reed Hoffman and his team, led by Dimitri, have supported and helped to fund over the past two years. So again, these are establishment Democrat billionaires funding people they think can further their establishment Democrat billionaire political agendas. Or, as Vanity Fair put it, Hoffman and Melhorn, after all, are not just building a power base that could supplement traditional Democratic organizations. They are, potentially, 
laying the groundwork to usurp the DNC entirely. Basically, Reid Hoffman saw what happened here with Russian interference in the 2016 election and thought, you know what? I bet I can just pay people to do that same thing for me. And if that sounds like hyperbole, I'd like to direct your attention to something called Project Birmingham. That's the name of one of the first projects Reid Hoffman and Dmitry Melhorn funded, this time through a company called American Engagement Technologies, which is run by a guy named Mikey Dickerson, who used to work in the Obama administration. The goal of Project Birmingham, which doesn't sound like some CIA-adjacent shit at all, was to take the tactics Russia used in 2016 and apply them to a Senate race in the United States. The race in question? The 2017 Alabama Senate race between Roy Moore and Doug Jones. I know. Again, say it with me. Who gives a fuck? Roy Moore was a disgusting pedophile, and whatever happened in the name of him losing is more than fine. And sure, I get that argument. Totally. But I'd also like to remind you that we, as a country, tend to try out our most extreme justice techniques on pedophiles first, and then apply them to everyone else later. Like how we used to joke about how pedophiles get raped in prison, but now we extend that joke to any high-profile person who goes to prison. There's another example I use all the time, and if you'll indulge me, I'd like to share it again, just in case anyone hasn't heard it. Obama successfully revoked the citizenship of three men who were involved in a child porn operation. And the reasoning was that the crimes they committed had already happened by the time they applied for citizenship, and because they didn't report those crimes, they technically lied on their applications. The courts agreed, and we all cheered as three American citizens, naturalized American citizens, who'd already been through the American justice system for their crimes, were stripped of their citizenship. Because pedophiles. And again, sure, I hear you. But please note that when something like this happens, we aren't setting a precedent that will apply only to pedophiles in the future. Obama's well-intentioned denaturalization, that's what they call it, of three sex criminals back then is Trump's denaturalization task force now. And if you think he's just going after pedophiles, look up the sad case of Norma Borgonio. She's a 63-year-old grandma who's from Peru but hasn't been back there in decades. The boss at her job back in the day carried out a massive tax fraud scheme. She was a secretary at the company. She typed up contracts, almost certainly devoid of any knowledge that a crime was happening. But just having worked there meant she was technically complicit in the crime, and the feds were quick to tell her that. So rather than face trial, she agreed to help build the case against her boss in exchange for getting off with just house arrest and probation. You might recognize that as doing the right thing. So with all that said, do I even need to tell you who Trump went after first when he launched his denaturalization task force? That's right, Norma Borgonio. Turns out her boss's scheme started before she applied for citizenship. And she's just one of who knows how many people were targeted under something called Operation Janus. J-A-N-U-S. Look it up which was another Trump administration effort meant to identify more cases like Norma Borgonio. And it's all based on the precedent we set when Obama denaturalized those three dudes involved in a child porn ring. So just keep all of that in the back of your mind while I run you through what Reid Hoffman, Dimitri Melhorn, and American Engagement Technologies did during the 2017 Alabama Senate race. First... 
American Engagement Technologies contracted another company called New Knowledge to run what they described in their own words as an elaborate false flag operation meant to convince Alabama voters that Roy Moore was getting secret support from Russia. And here's how that operation worked. They set up a bunch of Twitter accounts that looked like Russian bots and had them follow Roy Moore. Then they just planted stories on social media and in the press about how Russia was supporting Roy Moore by way of Russian bots. Pretty easy, actually. They even managed to get the story covered in the New York Post. The next step was to see if they could draw Republican voters to an alternative write-in candidate. To do that, they set up a Facebook page meant to appeal to conservative voters in Alabama and drive them toward write-in candidates. And at one point, one of those write-in candidates, a Republican named Mac Watson, reached out to the page. It was one of dozens of pages he reached out to, but theirs was the only one that responded. You are in a particularly interesting position, and from what we have read of your politics, we would be inclined to endorse you. That's the reply he got. I used a robot voice to say it just to kind of illustrate the point that at no time during his contact with the people behind this page did Mac Watson ever learn anyone's actual name. He talked to a personality-less Facebook page only. But overnight, he went from 100 Twitter followers to 10,000 followers. But they did something else for him that was way more impressive. They got him interviews in the Montgomery Advertiser, which is an outlet that's big enough to be part of the USA Today Network, and the Washington Post. And it's probably worth mentioning that all of this is according to a report about the project written by the people who carried out the project. The content of that report was even covered by the New York Times. And that's where stories like this get tricky. On the one hand, there's apparently nothing in the report that indicates that any of the people who covered the Russian bots or Mac Watson in the media had any knowledge that a disinformation campaign was afoot. However, there is the weird case of Scott Shane. He's a super well-respected New York Times reporter who's won lots of awards for his work, but he also attended an off-the-record event held by American Engagement Technologies in September 2018, where he apparently learned of the Project Birmingham operation, but waited until December of that year to write anything about it. In between those points, he did two really interesting things. One, he wrote an article covering a Senate Intelligence Committee report produced by New Knowledge that positioned them as bipartisan-approved experts on Russian election interference, while making no mention of the Alabama Senate operation, which for sure would have had some impact on that bipartisan label. Two, as reported by BuzzFeed, he signed an NDA with new knowledge and didn't bother mentioning that in any of his articles. His argument, which he made on Twitter, was that he signed the NDA with the understanding that he could follow up separately on anything he heard and report on it provided his sources didn't come from that meeting. And sure enough, a few days after the article on the Senate Intelligence Committee report went up, he published a separate article about the Alabama project. Good for him, on the one hand, but also he goes out of his way to downplay the importance and effectiveness of it all in the article. Readers are constantly reminded of details like how the budget for the operation was only $100,000, and there's no way that could have enough of an impact to turn an election. There's even a quote from a representative of the Doug Jones campaign saying that's not possible. But is it really not possible? According to New Knowledge's own report on the operation, they targeted 650,000 voters in Alabama with the intention of swaying maybe 50,000 votes. Doug Jones won by 21,294 votes. 
Of the 1.3 million votes cast, more than 22,800 were write-in votes. Granted, Mac Watson only got a few hundred, but Condoleezza Rice and Jeff Sessions both got a bunch. Did the New Knowledge campaign have anything to do with the others? We don't really have any way of knowing. And that, in no way, means the answer is no. In the wake of Doug Jones' win, black female voters were credited with delivering that win, and that's definitely fair. He did really well among that demographic, and they turned out in record numbers to vote for him. He also got a historic level of support from white voters who, if you can believe it, don't tend to vote Democrat in Alabama. And I hope it's clear that I'm not saying that to take away from what black voters did to keep a pedophile from keeping a Senate seat. What I'm getting at is that Doug Jones won by a pretty small margin, and his support didn't just come from one place. If new knowledge just met 10% of their goal, that's still 5,000 votes, and there's really no way of knowing how many people they just convinced to not vote at all. For what it's worth, their report claims they moved enough votes to secure a win for Doug Jones. Oh, and fun detail alert. The day after the 2017 Alabama Senate race ended, the Facebook page that endorsed Mac Watson just up and disappeared. And the people behind it claim they don't remember the name of it now. How convenient. Also, the effectiveness of this operation isn't really the point. It's the effort. Here's a quote from Jonathan Morgan, chief executive of New Knowledge. The research project was intended to help us understand how these kinds of campaigns operated. We thought it was useful to work in the context of a real election, but design it to have almost no impact. Which, fair enough, but here's the thing. We know how Russia interfered in the election. There are countless pages of documentation about it. Even if it was just a practice run, what they did is still election interference. And Scott Shane's article doesn't seem nearly as alarmed about that point as it should be. Lots of people who read the article were alarmed. So much so that shortly after it came out, Reed Hoffman publicly apologized for funding the group behind the effort. And I promise this is all going to circle back to the Iowa caucuses and Pete Buttigieg. I know it seems like we've gone way off course. In the name of keeping your eyes on the prize, I'll inject a little mystery into this affair by one reminding you that people don't call him CIA Pete for nothing, and two, giving you a little homework. In my opinion, one of the most massively underappreciated political articles in American history is Carl Bernstein's 1977 Rolling Stone article called The CIA and the Media. Google it when you're done listening and give it a read. Warning, it's 25,000 words long, but you can do it. I know you can. Anyway, the outrage over Project Birmingham was such that Jonathan Morgan and everyone else at New Knowledge who were involved were, get ready to clutch your pearls, suspended from Facebook. That'll show them, except it didn't show them. In January 2019, it came to light that Reed Hoffman and Dimitri Melhorn funded another fake news effort during the 2018 congressional midterm elections. In that case, the controversy centered around an entity they funded called News for Democracy. What News for Democracy did was set up a bunch of different Facebook pages about all sorts of areas of interest, mostly intended to attract conservative voters. Sports, religion, the American flag, local news, you name it. They'd cultivate a following for these pages by delivering exactly the content they promised to deliver. Then, as election night approached, they'd start hammering those conservative voters with attacks on Republicans and endorsements for Democratic candidates like Beto O'Rourke. Is that cool? 
Are you all right with that happening? After all, this is just Democrats using the same tactics Republicans are benefiting from, just like all that dark money stuff. And yeah, sure, but please remember, these people aren't here to help your Bernies and your AOCs craft America into a socialist utopia. A billionaire is still a billionaire, and billionaires are behind this effort. If it can come for conservative voters, it can just as easily come for people who are still on the fence about Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. Oh, hey, this segue is brought to you by Segway. Segway, when you need a segue, Segway. Now let's circle back to acronym. The company that founded Shadow Inc., which, just a reminder, is the company that built the app that wrecked the Iowa caucuses. A couple more reminders. Acronym was funded by Reed Hoffman, the same guy who funded the two misinformation campaigns I just spent a whole bunch of time discussing. Honestly, you should have at least remembered that part. And you probably remember that acronym CEO, Tara McGowan, is married to a senior advisor to the Pete Buttigieg campaign and has tweeted her support for the campaign multiple times. Cool. Now guess what Tara McGowan gets up to when she's not funding the technological advances that will eventually undermine whatever is left of our democracy. She sets up authentic-looking but ultimately shady local news websites and then uses them to spread democratic news and talking points by spending thousands of dollars promoting those articles on Facebook. Again, don't get excited unless you're really pumped for a Biden-Buttigieg campaign in 2020. Speaking of Facebook, a guy named David Plouffe is on the board at Acronym also. He was Obama's 2008 campaign manager and an advisor in 2012. And he has another job, leader of policy and advocacy at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, a charitable LLC set up by Mark Zuckerberg. Cool! For her part, Tara McGowan wrote a Medium article in November 2019 arguing that banning political ads on Facebook would hand Trump the election in 2020 because it would mostly hurt Democrats who rely on smaller donors, which is pretty crazy coming from someone who pumps millions of dollars of dark money into Democratic initiatives. Also, let's talk about those news sites of hers. Without Facebook, they don't exist. They all start with a for-profit media company she founded with $25 million raised from wealthy liberals who most likely have zero interest in losing their riches to fund your Medicare for All and forgiven student loan debt. The company's called Courier Newsroom, and it capitalizes on two relatively recent developments, the rise of social media and the death of local news outlets. Courier Newsroom sets up newspaper websites with quaint-sounding names like the Virginia Dogwood or Arizona's Copper Courier, and then spreads the articles those papers churn out through a network of Facebook ads and pages, which they spend thousands and thousands of dollars to promote and target to whatever voter demo they're hoping to influence. And again, for a while, these news sites deliver exactly what they promise. Local news stories, pictures of dogs, sports news, things of the like. It's all meant to build an audience and build trust in that audience that, indeed, this charming little local Facebook page has my best Virginian interests at heart. And then an election rolls around and things get really political. It's cool, though, because she promises that the only goal is to be objective and spread real news and definitely not to sway elections in the way that the people who fund her efforts have repeatedly practiced doing in the past. There is absolutely no evidence 
that her ties to and support of the Buttigieg campaign and the fact that her company provided the money to build the app that wrecked the reporting results process during the same Iowa caucuses where Pete Buttigieg came out of nowhere to emerge victorious are at all related. But I think you can understand why people might suspect they are, be it Trump supporters, Bernie bros, or anyone in between. The fact that there is no evidence of a plot by establishment Democrats to rig the Iowa caucuses against Bernie Sanders in no way changes the fact that a company that advocates for the use of and engages in the use of Russian-style Facebook tactics to sway voters and who got their start using money provided by a guy with a history of trying to use social media and misinformation to sway voters also built the infrastructure used to run the 2020 Iowa caucuses. And in a massive upset, it seems like their guy won. Even if everything is on the up and up and what happened in Iowa really was just an unfortunate technological glitch, these people are as worthy of our attention, scrutiny, and criticism as any foreign actor when it comes to the integrity of the 2020 election. Especially if you have your hopes for the future of the country pinned to a progressive candidate taking office next January. That's all. I'm just saying. Keep them on your radar. Pete Buttigieg has some interesting people in his corner. Did they help him win the Iowa caucuses? Yeah, but at this point, it seems like mostly just through technological ineptitude. And hopefully that's all it is. And everything from here goes smooth as can be. I guess we'll see, America. That is our episode, though, for now. Whose episode? Ours. Mine and yours. I've been your host, Adam Todd Brown. I don't really have anything to plug. Let's just get the fuck out of here. Goodbye, everybody. I love you. Mm-hmm.